0: So this morning, uh, I'm continuing going through my sermon series in the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. If you're unfamiliar with 2 Corinthians, it was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders, to a church that he started in Corinth, which is part of ancient Greece, part of the Roman Empire. And uh, he started the church around the year 50 AD. He moved on to start another church. He sent one letter, which we know as 1 Corinthians, because he heard of all kinds of issues that were going on in the church. After the letter, he then made what he calls in 2 Corinthians a painful visit because he had to come and he needed to confront something that was happening. And he made this visit and apparently uh, trying to reconstruct what happened, some of what was happening was that there were some false teachers who were there throwing shade on Paul and his ministry and his um, authenticity as a disciple. And then there seemed to be an individual in particular in Corinth who really uh, caused a lot of dissension against Paul, and the Corinthians did nothing about it. And it really grieved Paul and and caused some strain in their relationship. And so he follows up this painful visit with what he calls a letter written in tears. Uh, he, He writes this letter. He doesn't want to make another painful visit. He writes this letter in tears, pleading with them to take care of this issue in their midst. You know, to deal with this individual who's causing all this dissension. And he sends this letter with Titus, one of his ministry associates. And in those days, there was no email. There was no texting. He had to send the letter overseas to them. And he's grieved and in a lot of angst and anxiety while he's waiting for a response from Titus to find out, you know, did they receive my letter did they understand did they repent did they are, are they just you know is this the end of our relationship he's really got a lot of anxiety about this and so this letter 2 Corinthians is written after Titus comes back after he gives him a good report of what's happened and this chapter that we're going to be in in 2 Corinthians 7 kind of deals with this response but first let me just go back to 2 Corinthians 2 this was from a few weeks ago he had said, "So I made up my mind I would not make another painful visit to you, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you, whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I come, when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears." Not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So you can picture this, this man who started this church and loves dearly these, these people as if they were his own children. He's grieved at the strain in their relationship. He's broken up over it and it's causing him a ton of anxiety. And so he writes this letter in tears to them, hoping that they will kind of restore their relationship with him. And so 2 Corinthians 7, where we're going to be this morning, talks about what happened as he hears back from Titus about how that letter went. So here we go. 2 Corinthians 7, 2 to 16. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. We're going to focus on that section in yellow this morning, as you can see. See what godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. And by all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad that I can have complete confidence in you. Let me pray before we continue. God, help us to understand what this passage means. Apply this to our lives. Help us, Lord, to become more like you as we meditate on your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, in this passage, he's referring to this letter in tears that he had written and sent with Titus to confront them about a situation that was going on. And he's got a lot of anxiety waiting for Titus' return. And so Titus finally comes back, and it is joyous news. It sounds like they really received it with what he calls godly sorrow. Not a worldly sorrow that leads to destruction and death, but a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and salvation and leads to reconciliation among them. And he's really just encouraged by that. And I know it's Valentine's today, and, you know, it's supposed to be a day all about love. Um, But this passage, believe it or not, is really about love, about real love right? Because we're not talking here about a sentimental love that even junior high kids get into and they should send each other chocolate and flowers. I'm not talking about that kind of love. I'm talking about the kind of love that is willing to confront someone who you love and say hard things to them, right? I mean, that is the next level love, isn't it? To love someone so much that you are willing to speak the truth and love to them, hard things that they need to hear because you want maturity in them. You want them to grow up. You want unity between the two of you. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning because he talks about how in his rebuke of them, in his confrontation of them, it led them not to worldly sorrow that led to death, but to godly sorrow that led to repentance, salvation, and unity between them. So we're going to get into a little bit of that, the importance of Rebuke, confrontation, speaking the truth in love to one another. As the proverb puts it, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. That's what Paul is doing here in this passage, is he's wounding them, but it's because of his love for them that he's taking the courage to say difficult things to them about the way they're living and what they're allowing in their midst. So that's my hope this morning is to kind of talk a little bit about the art of rebuke, the art of speaking the truth in love. And so three things in particular from 2 Corinthians 7 I want to get into. First of all, the importance of rebuke. And when I say rebuke, I mean speaking hard truths to someone, you know, telling someone a hard truth in love that they need to hear. That's, that's a rebuke or a confrontation. Why is rebuke so important? There's two main reasons, okay? Two main reasons why it's important to speak the truth in love, the hard truths to people. First of this, that sin is deadly serious to us and to others. That we have parts of us that aren't good, that do not bring life to us, that do not bring life to other people. The Bible calls that sin. That we have sin in us that leads to destruction and death in us and in relationships with each other. of James chapter 1, 13 to 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So each of us has these evil desires inside of us that lead to sin. Full grown, he says, leads to death. And sometimes, We need someone to point this out to us, that maybe we aren't seeing what's going on, that we need someone to tell us, you know what, the way that you speak to people, you might not be aware of it, but you have this tone of voice in which you speak that really causes people to be fearful of you, you know, or to get angry at you. Or maybe you need someone to say, listen, you don't seem to take any responsibility, right? You seem to expect everyone else to do things for you. Or the way that you are bringing, the way that you use your time, you just don't use your time wisely. You use your time, you waste so much time. Sometimes we have these desires in us that lead to sin. When sin, it says when it's full grown, leads to death and destruction, whether it's for ourselves or in relationship. And so we need others to encourage, to rebuke, to exhort us. Hebrews 3. 12 through 13 says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So, why do we need people to speak the truth and love to us? First of all, because we're not perfect, and we have areas in us, that the Bible calls sin, that lead to death, destruction in us, and in relationship to others. And second reason it's so important is because we are blind to some of our sinful ways. If you're sitting out here saying, I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't have any, you know, things about me that need to be rebuked. I mean, I, I, know, I know he does. I know she does. But I don't. Maybe, just maybe, it's because you're blind. Maybe because you don't see some things that other people can see. Right? Maybe there's some things about you that you are completely blind to. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Okay, There are plenty of things that you think are just fine about the way you speak, about the way you act, and others who know you and love you are looking at you and saying, doesn't he see, doesn't she see what she's doing, how he's coming across? Jeremiah 17.9 even says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Again, just because we want something does not always mean that it's a good thing. Just because we act or say things in a certain way doesn't necessarily mean it's good for us or for others. Sometimes we're blind. I can look back at my life, and I can remember many specific instances of people sitting me down and telling me things that I was completely blind to about the ways I treated others, the things that I was saying. I didn't realize how thoughtless I can be how careless I can be, how aloof I can be. I didn't realize that often I go through life expecting others to take responsibility for things and not stepping up and taking responsibility to myself. These were things that had to be pointed out to me by people I love. They needed to point these things out to me in order for me to see, oh, I didn't even realize that. And maybe you're blind to a few things. Maybe you've had people who have had to point out to you things that you were completely unaware of. Maybe someone had to point out to you how careless you can be towards money and possessions. Maybe someone's had to point out to you how your need for perfection and everything to be in order causes you to speak unkindly to people who transgress that. There's a proverb that is really an interesting one. It says, whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. In other words, it's kind of the opposite of speaking the truth in love is the one who just says kind, nice things all the time, but never says the hard truths. It's like someone spreading a net for your feet, not pointing out, hey, by the way, there's a net you're about to fall into. If you continue down the path, you're going. So, why is it so important that we have people in our lives speaking the truth and love and that we speak the truth and love to others? Because... We're not perfect. We have sin. We have areas of our life that need to be done away with. Otherwise, they're going to lead to destruction for us and for our relationships. And secondly, because we're blind to it so often. We don't see. And others see things about us that we don't see. Right now, I know you see things about me that I am blind to, you know? And it's going to take some of you to be able to say, hey, Eric, have you ever noticed this about yourself? Or maybe you're not aware of this about yourself. And for me to say, oh, I never realized that. You know, I'm sorry about that. So let's talk a little bit about the art of rebuke, about speaking the truth in love. And there's many things I could say. There's books that have been written about this subject. But I just want to mention four things this morning. The first is this, the great illustration that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 7. Before you rebuke someone, take the log out of your own eye first. This is how Jesus... Put it in Matthew 7, 3 through 5. He says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's just genius, isn't that? It's such a great way of putting it that here we are looking around, seeing the speck in everyone's eye, right? And we want to tell them about it, maybe. We want to point it out to them, maybe not kindly, in a kind fashion. Just tell everyone how wrong they are for what, the way they're acting and what they're doing. And Jesus says, before you do that, before you go and take the speck out of your neighbor's eye, why don't you first hold a mirror up to yourself, take the plank out of your own eye? He even calls him a hypocrite, right? He's saying, first of all, if you're trying to do surgery on someone's speck in their eye and you've got a plank, blocking your vision, you're probably going to injure them, right? You're probably going to wound them with what you do. So first, why don't you just stop and reflect on yourself? Say, is there anything about myself that I need to deal with first before I go and rebuke someone and speak the truth in love? Before you confront someone about something they need to hear, first you stop and you look at yourself if you're in an argument with someone and you're absolutely positively sure that it's completely their fault, maybe you need to first, before you tell them that, say, is there anything I need to confess and repent of? Even if it's just 10%, you know? Even if it's just 5%, even if it's 95% their fault, but 5% is your fault, what would it mean to come to them first and say, hey, I just want to apologize for my part in this. I want to, I want to ask your forgiveness for the part that I contributed. Before you rebuke, before you speak the truth and love. Take the plank out of your own eyes. Secondly, consider if you can overlook the offense. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Sometimes when you're offended, before you lash out and tell them how terrible they are, maybe you need to stop first and say, is this a big deal? Is this something I can just overlook and let go? Or do they really need to know, know what they've done? Maybe you can live with the fact that your spouse doesn't put their shoes exactly where they should be when they come home because they just worked a really long day and they want to see the kids and they left their shoes out and it's okay. You know what? I can overlook that offense because they've worked hard, they want to spend time with us, it's not a big deal. Maybe you can put up with a friend who occasionally forgets things because they are always there for you when you need them. And so what? You know what? I can overlook some of the smaller things. Some questions to consider are these, you know, is... Is this offense dishonoring to God? Is it damaging your relationship with the person? Is it hurting the offender? Is it hurting others? Or if I don't say anything, will it continue to hurt other people? You know, Is this something that I can just overlook and say it's no big deal? Or is this something that I really need to address? Third thing, before you rebuke someone, speak the truth in love, treating each other as God's family. Are you ready to do that? Are you... If you feel like, I need to tell my parents, I need to tell my kids, I need to tell my spouse, I need to tell my friend this. They need to know this. Consider first, are you ready to speak the truth in love? Treating them as a family member. Treating them as someone who's not just that idiot over there, but a family member. Every time you read through you know, the Bible and it talks about confrontation, it almost always uses the language of brothers and sisters, such as 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So this is in the context of rebuke. He's saying, listen, if you're going to have to confront someone, treat them as if they were your father, mother, sister, brother. Treat them with love. Speak the truth in love. That phrase comes from Ephesians 4, 15, where it says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. How do we grow into maturity? By speaking the truth in love to each other. Speaking the truth in love. Now, some of you are really good at speaking the truth, aren't you? Some of you who got that part down, you know, you're like, listen, they needed to hear it, and I said it. You know what? It's just the way it is. They need to hear it, and and if if they if they get offended, that's on them, you know. But somebody's got to tell them the truth. The love part, not so much. The love part, maybe you kind of aren't really paying attention to that part. And worried about that. For you, it's just I gotta say it. I gotta speak the truth, and however it comes out, it comes out, and however they take it, they take it. As long as I said it, that's what matters. But Paul says, listen, it's it's not about just speaking the truth. It's about speaking the truth in love. And then there's others of you who you really want to make sure you love the other person and how you speak, but you're afraid maybe sometimes to speak the truth, right? You're afraid that they'll get offended or they might not like you if you speak the truth to them. And so you just want to speak love, speak flattery, or maybe not even speak because you're afraid what will happen if you speak the truth. But he says, speak the truth in love. And in a case you don't remember what love is, 1 Corinthians 13 lays it out pretty well. Love is patient. Love is kind It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. It's a pretty good list there, right? So when you're thinking about, I really need to confront this person about something, i got to speak the truth to them, might want to just look down this list before you do that and say, okay, can I approach them and speak to them in a way that is not rude? That doesn't keep a record of wrongs and just lays out everything they've ever done against me? Can I speak the truth in a way that protects them? If not, then maybe before you go and speak to them, you might need to go and pray and prepare your heart to speak the truth in love. As if they were a family member. Not to tear them down, not to convince them that they're terrible, but to build them up, to bring maturity in unity. Galatians 6, 1 through 2, Paul says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him, what's that word? Gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If someone is acting in a way that is just offensive and terrible, restore them gently. If you're not ready to speak the truth in love, then go and spend some time with God and prepare your heart to speak the truth in love. Not to just blast them because, well, they need to hear the truth. This is, again, he says, speaking the truth in love is how we grow up into maturity. If you want to grow up, if you want others to grow up, it comes from speaking the truth and love to each other, things that people are blind to, things they don't understand and realize about themselves, being able to say those things in love. Fourth thing about, before you rebuke something, is, is this, enlist help if necessary. Matthew 18:15 to 17, Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, this is in the context of the church, of where there's issues in the church. But the truth that I want to take from this for us is enlist help if necessary. So sometimes you can go to someone and you can say, listen, the way that you are speaking to me and treating me is really offensive, and I would ask you to please stop doing that. And if someone will not receive what you have to say and gets defensive and is, attacks you back, then you may need to enlist help. You may need to bring a trusted friend. You may need to bring a counselor along and say, we need to go talk to counseling, you know, someone to a counselor. You may need a pastor. You may need a trusted family member. Someone else you can bring along with you. If you feel like, you know what, they're just not listening to me and I need someone else to come alongside and help. That's okay. The Bible in this passage is saying, listen, you keep it as small as possible for as long as possible. Someone hurts you, you don't go blasting it to the church. You don't go blasting it to your family member, to everyone. right? You keep it as small as possible for as long as possible between the two of us and then bring a couple more along and then if necessary, bring it to the church but we try to deal with it and enlist help if necessary. So that's some about the art of rebuke, right? Just checking yourself, taking the plank out of your own eye first, making sure that you can and are ready to speak the truth in love, and you enlist help if necessary. But what about the reaction to the rebuke? How, how are you at that? How are you when someone comes to you and and Tells you something hard, confronts you about something that is difficult to hear. How are you with that? Are you someone who hears and is able to say, "Thank you, I really appreciate you bringing this to my attention. I'll go and pray about it, and 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 you know ready, eager to confess, to ask for forgiveness?" Or are you someone who immediately gets defensive, or feels, you know, hurt, feels like you're a terrible person? How is it that you are, at? Responding. Remember, again, what Paul said. He said, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So he had to confront the Corinthians, and they got sad about it. They were hurt by it, but their hurt, he says, didn't go the path of worldly sorrow that leads to destruction and death, but went the path of godly sorrow that leads to repentance, salvation, and leaves no regret. Two individuals that I can think of that illustrate this are Peter and Judas. So Jesus is being led off to be crucified. Peter denies knowing him three times, one of his disciples. Judas betrays him, right? So they are both you know, offending Jesus. And they both kind of experience a lot of sorrow as a result. Peter goes off fishing, gives up, kind of goes. But then when Jesus comes, the risen Jesus comes to Peter, what happens? You know, he, he repents. He responds, and he finds joy and salvation and follows Jesus. Judas, on the other hand, it says when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. That's a picture of worldly sorrow. He's seized with remorse, he wants to, but he doesn't find any forgiveness, any grace, and he goes off and hangs himself because he doesn't find the grace and the repentance that leads to life. So when you are confronted, when someone speaks the hard truth in love to you, how do you respond in such a way that isn't just defensive, doesn't just attack back, or doesn't, like Judas, just go into despair thinking how horrible you are? I think one of the keys that I want to talk about this morning is finding your identity in who God says you are, not in who someone else says you are, not in who you think you are, but finding your identity in who God says you are by the gospel. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. This is Paul saying, I don't evaluate myself based on what you think, what you think, what anyone thinks. I don't even evaluate myself based on what I think of myself. Sometimes we can be our harshest critics. He says, I evaluate myself by what he thinks of me. And what does he think of me? The best phrase that I can think of that will help you in this is this, that I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a sinner saved by grace. On the one hand, there's so much evil and wickedness in me that nothing less than the death of the Son of God would save me. That on my own, I cannot stand before a holy God with my spiritual resume and present it to him and have him say, you know, great job. You're accepted. You're welcome. Because God is a holy God and we fall short. I'm so sinful that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save me. But on the other hand, I'm so loved that he willingly gave his life for me. That he died for me when I didn't deserve it. That's the grace part. On the one hand, I'm a sinner. Know what that means when someone confronts me? (laughs) I can nod my head and say, yeah, you're right. And there's like a hundred other things you haven't even mentioned, right? (laughs) When someone comes to me and says, Eric, and people have come to me and said, Eric, you know, and had to lay out to me the things that I've done to hurt them, the ways that I've been unkind or thoughtless, hurtful, because I know I'm a sinner. I can listen without getting defensive, without arguing back, without trying to justify myself and recognize they're probably right. They're probably seeing things about me that are true because I know I'm a sinner, so I don't need to get defensive. I don't need to go into despair, argue back, or any of that. But on the other hand, I'm saved by grace. I'm so loved by the God of the universe that he gave his life for me. And You know what that means? I mean, when someone comes to me, and they might not come in love, they might come in anger and tell me how horrible I am, you know, how I've ruined their life, how I've hurt them. I don't need to go into despair because of their judgment of me because of their condemnation because of their evaluation of me because I know who I am I know who I am in the sight of God I know that I am a sinner but I'm saved by grace I'm forgiven all the things that they're pointing out to me even if they're true they've been covered by the blood of Jesus he died for me so on the one hand I know I'm a sinner I don't need to get defensive I don't need to argue back I don't need to justify myself I know that the things they're saying could be possibly true And there's many other things they're not saying that are true. So I don't need to go that route of of getting defensive or attacking back. But on the other hand, I don't need to go into despair. I don't need to judge myself based on their judgment of me or their condemnation of me because I know what God says I am. I know that I'm a sinner saved by grace. When we know who we are, then we can hear, we can receive the rebuke, and like the Corinthians, it can be godly sorrow. I'm so sorry I hurt you. I didn't realize that I was doing that. Please forgive me. It can be a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to restoration and salvation and life. Because we know that God forgives. First John 8-10 through, 8 through 10 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. And so when someone comes to you and says, you know, the way that you have acted has really offended or hurt me, even if they don't say it in a kind, you know, loving way, and they just come at you with anger, if you know who you are, then you can receive it. You know what? I'm probably blind to some things. I need to receive this. I need to consider it. I know that their judgment of me does not define me. I know that God says that I'm saved by grace, that I'm loved, that he sees me as perfect despite my sin. And if necessary, then I can confess. I can respond to someone's anger, someone's accusation. And if there's something I did to hurt them, then I can confess to them and I can say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Quickly going through, there's a book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. He talks about the seven A's of confession. I'm never good at the whole, like, let's do everything starting with the same letter, but there's some people who are. The seven A's of confession, he says, address everyone involved. If it's an individual, then confess to them. If it's a church or if it's a family, then you address them. Address everyone involved. Avoid, if, but, and maybe. Right? Hey, I'm sorry, but I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't for you. Honey, I'm sorry I said that, but it's your fault, right? It kind of negates the, it negates the apology when you follow it up with the but or the and of the sorry, right? Hey, I am sorry if you were offended. That doesn't work either. Admit specifically, not just the blanket, hey, I'm sorry, but hearing someone's heart and saying, I am sorry you know that my lack of responsibility has put so much on your plate. I am sorry that I have done that. I'm sorry that I spoke with such an angry tone of voice. It's admitting specifically, admitting specifically, you know, what we've done and what the other person has brought to us. Number four, accept the consequences. If there are consequences to your actions, then accept those consequences. Number five, alter your behavior. Not just I'm sorry, but making a commitment to try to change. Number six, ask for forgiveness. Maybe not just saying, I'm sorry, but asking the person, will you forgive me for what I did to hurt you? And then number seven, allow time. God forgives immediately. Humans do not. And we can't expect them to forgive immediately. If you've really, really, really hurt somebody and you come to them confessing and saying, I'm so sorry for what I did. Please forgive me. And if the best they can say is, I want to, but I can't right now. Give me time. Then that's okay. You don't get to say, but the Bible says you're supposed to forgive, you know? No, it's, you give people time. Forgiveness takes time for people. Can I encourage you, again, if you are someone who reacts when someone comes to you to speak the truth in love or just speaking the truth and it's not coming out in love and you get defensive, you attack back, can I encourage you to consider you're a sinner saved by grace. Grace. You are blind to some things about who you are and how you treat people. And if other people are bringing them to your attention, bite your tongue, resist the urge to fight back, consider what it is they have to say. They might be right. After all, you are a sinner. But remember, you are also saved by grace. Their judgment of you, their condemnation of you is not who you are. Thank God and say, thank you, God, that you don't see me this way. You don't talk to me this way. Thank you, God. That you love me despite my sin, that you always show me grace and mercy. Remember Romans 8, 1 through 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So when someone comes to you, it's, you know what? I am a sinner. You're correct. I'm worse than you even know. But I know there's no condemnation in Christ, I know I'm forgiven. So I can confess, have godly sorrow that leads me to repentance and unity and brings maturity and not a worldly sorrow that just leads me to despair and bitterness and death. Can I encourage you this morning, the heart of this, the heart of this is to find your identity in Christ and who he says you are. You want to be good at confronting others, speaking the truth and love to others and speak and receiving that from others. Find your identity in Christ. Because otherwise, you're going to have all kinds of fears, all sort of anxieties. You're going to overreach and say things out of anger. You're going to respond in defensiveness and attacking. When you're not settled on who he says you are, it's going to be a roller coaster when it comes to this. But you're a sinner saved by grace, a beloved child of God. Trust and believe that. And then speak the truth in love. I Can I encourage you? This is going to be hard for some of you. Can I encourage you to give people that you trust, permission to speak into your life? Because I bet there are people who want to say something, but they're afraid of how you are going to take it. And what would it mean for you to say, hey, I want to give you permission to speak into my life. And if there are things that you see about me, that are, are sinful, that are wrong, that are immature, that hurt other people, there are things that you see that you've wanted to say, you know, or that you see that you want to say, I'm giving you permission to say it, and I will listen. And I won't argue back, I won't fight back, I will take it to God, I'll consider what it is you have to say. Why would we do that? Why would we open ourselves up to that kind of, you know, possible rebuke? Because we want to grow up. We want to be mature. We want to have unity. There's a false, fake kind of unity, right? Where you just kind of keep the peace even though underneath the surface there's all kinds of things that you want to say. This is real peace, real unity where we speak the truth and love to each other growing up into maturity. So I encourage you, give permission to people to speak the truth and love into your life. And when you have that opportunity to do that with others, again, do it in love. Speak the truth in love to each other because you want them to grow up to maturity, and you want there to be real unity. Amen.